Well, we're going to turn to our Bibles now, and we're turning to the letter of 2 Peter again this evening. Uh, Tonight is a big question night, but we are turning back to 2 Peter. We're currently in a series on this letter, and there are some very helpful verses in the first chapter of 2 Peter about assurance, and we didn't really unpack them last week, and we're going to try and unpack them a little bit more tonight. So we're reading 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning at verse 3, reading down to verse 11, and you'll find it on page 1018 of the, B, of the Blue Pew Bibles. Page 1018. Peter here, we know, is talking about us confirming our calling and election, and he wants us to be assured of our faith, as we'll see uh, towards the end of our reading. So for Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, this is God's word to us. It says, his divine power has granted to to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, you, know that our, you know that for our big question nights, we move the service around a little bit, and the sermon comes a little bit earlier, and uh, we're going to think about this question of assurance for a few moments. As you're turning to Second Peter, uh, let's pray briefly before we do that. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you are dependable and reliable and utterly faithful. And we thank you for the gift of your word. And we pray that as we consider your word tonight, you would speak to us. And most of all, we pray that you would assure us of our salvation if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you help us to unpack this issue together tonight. And we pray that Jesus would be exalted as well. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, tonight we're, we're back to this series on big questions that are often asked of the Christian faith. Uh, the series has been slightly interrupted over the past few months. We've only really had three evenings thinking about a big question. Uh, we thought about what the Bible says about alcohol, and we also looked at what the Bible says about heaven. T- t- tonight we're going to be thinking about this significant pastoral question that is asked by people who are young and people who are old. The question is, can I really be sure that I am a Christian. It's really the question of assurance. Can I really be sure that I am a Christian? That, that, that's a question you might be asking if you're a teenager at the moment. 
you've been brought up in a Christian home, you know the gospel, you believe the gospel, but you've never had a conversion experience, so to speak. Are you really a Christian? It might be a question that's on your mind if you're at the other end of the age spectrum, and maybe you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s or even 90s, and you've been a Christian for a long time, you trusted in Christ in your youth, you've been involved in church for a lifetime, but there's a nagging doubt in your mind. Am I really a Christian? One of the most significant periods in church, church history was the time of the Reformation. Uh, you maybe know a little bit about it. You'll definitely know that someone called Martin Luther had a hammer and that he nailed a piece of paper to a door. If you don't know an awful lot about it, you should maybe read up on it. But what happened at the Reformation was that some people rediscovered the gospel, the pure, undiluted gospel that we all know so well. The Reformers rediscovered the truth that the Bible is the only source of authority, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But as well as that, more specifically, the Reformers understood that the Bible teaches that we are radically depraved, talks about sin, that we have been unconditionally elected, that God has chosen us, that there's a definite number of people who will be saved, that God's grace is irresistible, and that those who believe will persevere to the end. Those points are, are more commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. Not everyone agrees with every point, but we're not going to go into the specifics of those tonight. I will perhaps do a series on them at some point. What, what, what one of those five points was a particular gripe for those opposed to the Reformation. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is basically that all those who truly believe in Jesus will continue in the faith until they die. And it's also tied up with the belief that we can have the assurance of salvation on this side of glory. A Roman Catholic cardinal called Robert Bellarmine, who lived between 1542 and 1621, once said this. He said, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Not justification by faith alone, assurance. In other words, you cannot know that you are truly saved, truly a Christian in this life. And of course, as Bible-believing Christians, we, we, we respond by saying, no, no, you, you can. And as I hope we'll see tonight, assurance is, is not a heresy, but, but something wonderful that God provides to those who love him and seek him with all of their hearts. How, how are we going to think about this issue together this evening? Well, it's going to be slightly different compared to a normal sermon. We're going to think about four different types of people when it comes to the issue of assurance then we're going to think about the Bible's command to seek assurance. And then after that, we're going to think about some practical application. One of the important things for us to remember as we begin to think about this issue is that doubt is not the same as unbelief. Uh, too many people fail to recognize the difference. Unbelief in the Bible is a sinful decision to turn from God. Someone who doubts, though, may remain open to God and long to believe wholeheartedly but for whatever reason, find that hard to do. Doubt is not sinful, but it is serious. If it's not addressed properly, it could lead further down the road from faith to unbelief and away from Christ. When it comes to assurance of salvation, we have to understand as well that there are four kinds of people in the world. Sometimes we talk about there being two ways to live. That way of thinking still stands, but it's also true that there are four kinds of people in the world as well. 
Every living person, without exception, can be assigned to one of these categories. The four types of people are those who are saved and who know it, those who are saved but do not know it, those who are unsaved and know it, and those who are unsaved but do not know it. Let me just walk you through these categories very briefly. Those who are saved and know it. These people have full assurance that they are in a state of grace. It's a settled matter for them. That said, you might ask them one day, are you saved? And the answer you get is absolutely. But on another day, you might ask the same question and get the answer, well, you know, I think so. There are ups and downs in the Christian life. But true assurance survives the doubts because it's based on more than feelings. The person in this category has a foundation from which they can say, I know, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. So that's the first category, those who are saved and know it. it's a settled matter for them. So the second category of people are those who are saved but do not know it. It's possible for a person to be in a state of grace and yet not possess full assurance that they are in such a state. But part of the problem for this group has to do with a popular view of Christianity that insists on a dramatic conversion experience. Uh, some people come to Christ in that way. Uh, Billy Graham, the, the famous American preacher, could have told you the day and the hour when he became a Christian. His wife, though, Ruth Graham, had a different experience. She, she, she didn't know when she was converted. Uh, my own experience is that I don't really remember when I was converted. It happened, but as to when, I can't be precise. Within church circles, we have a tendency to make our own experience normative for everyone. So people who haven't had dramatic conversion, conversions can be suspicious of people who, who have, and people who haven't had dramatic conversions can be suspicious of people who have. The, the, the bottom line is this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have to know the exact time of our conversion. Now, we've also got to say that you can't be half-regenerate or semi-regenerate you're either born of the Spirit of God or you are not. And we also need to distinguish between a conversion and a conversion experience. We need to realize that not everyone is instantly aware of the moment when the Spirit of God does his supernatural work within his or her soul. In my experience, I have met people like this where they have slowly come to realize that they trust in Christ. And it's, it's sort of a journey that they go on and it's, takes a little bit of time, but they eventually come to realize that they've trusted in Jesus. God, the Holy Spirit, may regenerate or save a person a week, a month, or even years before they experience the reality of what has already happened internally. So those who are saved and know it, those who are saved but do not know it, third group are those who are unsaved and know it. We all know people like this, people who are openly living in rebellion to God, uh, there's a famous story told about an American comedian called W.C. Fields. He had lived an ungodly and irreligious life, but on his deathbed, a friend found him leafing through the Bible. The friend said to him, what are you doing? And Fields replied and said, looking for loopholes. It reminds us that even those who are unsaved and know it and are seemingly comfortable with the fact that they're in a perilous spiritual condition eventually come to the point where they realize they're about to meet their maker. One more group or category, those who are unsaved but do not know it. This category consists of people 
who are unsaved, but know they are saved. And this group has false assurance. One of the reasons people think this way is because of the doctrine of eternal security. And that's a doctrine which tells people that if they have made a profession at some point, any point in their life, they are eternally secure. The result is that some people who are not genuinely genuinely converted at all may come forward at the end of an evangelistic meeting or put their hand up to profess faith in Christ. But very soon after that, they leave the church and live a life that is no different from the one they lived before they gained their eternal security. Let me say very clearly tonight, the doctrine of eternal security is not in line with what the Bible teaches about conversion. It's really false assurance. So, so, so those are the four categories of people in our world today. For, for, for the next part of our time together, we're, we're going to narrow in on two of the groups, those who are saved and know it, and those who are saved but do not know it. The, 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 there can be some negativity when it comes to the pursuit of assurance of salvation because some people think that it could lead to arrogance. Of course, there's no worse arrogance than to have the assurance of something that we don't possess To be certain of salvation when we're not in a state of salvation is arrogant. Likewise, we're arrogant if we say that that assurance is not possible because then we're slandering the truth of God himself. If assurance is possible, we are arrogant if we don't seek it. We talked just a moment ago about false assurance and some bad theology connected to it. The point I was trying to subtly make was that bad theology can produce false assurance But on the other hand, good theology leads to true assurance. With that in mind, we need to recognize the command to seek assurance as it's found in the scriptures. At the moment at our evening services, we're studying the book of 2 Peter. Uh, The series is a bit more of a slow burn through a New Testament letter than a a run through the big picture of it. Uh, We've only got as far as verse 11. And you might have wondered why we read from 2 Peter again this evening. This is not one of our Second Peter nights. This is a big question night. But one of the key texts of Scripture in regard to the pursuit of assurance is Second Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Just look at what it says. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Here, with real clarity, the Bible's command to us is to inquire and look into the certainty of our election and not in a cavalier, casual way. Instead, we're to make our calling and election sure through diligent pursuit. Peter tells us this is very important, and then he goes on to give us practical reasons to be diligent in making our calling and election sure. He's very concerned about the concept of election. Now, lots of people don't believe in election, and in doing so, forget that it's actually a biblical concept. Now, I could pepper you with passage after passage, but I won't. Other people ask this about election. They say, well, how do you know whether you're elect or not? Election is a really important concept to resolve in your mind. If we have a a basic and sound understanding of election, and if we know that we're numbered among the elect, that knowledge provides unbelievable comfort to us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Quoted 2 Timothy 1, 12, a moment ago, 
Paul writes, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. But Paul is talking there about his confidence for his own future because of his knowledge of where he has put his faith. He says that he trusts not in his own part to persevere to the end of the race. Instead, his confidence is based on the one in whom he has believed, knowing that that, that one is able to keep him. That that's the kind of certainty of election that Peter is telling us to pursue with diligence. If we're called to make our election sure, then it follows that we are able to make our election sure. It's possible for us to know whether we're able to be numbered among the elect. With that in mind, we shouldn't postpone seeking assurance until the end of our lives. We should seek it diligently now. We should get it settled that we are numbered among the elect, that we're in the kingdom of God, that we've been adopted into the Father's house, and that we are truly in Christ and he in us. Now, how do we do that? That's the big question. If you're here tonight, if you're watching online, and you're struggling with the assurance of salvation, well, you need to ask yourself these three questions. First of all, do you love Jesus perfectly? And your answer to that will be, no, I don't. And that's why you're not sure of the state of your soul, because you know there are deficiencies in your affection for Christ, because you know that if you, know that if you love Christ perfectly, you will obey him perfectly. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As soon as we disobey one of his commandments, that's a signal to us that we don't love him perfectly. Second question, after acknowledging that you don't love Jesus perfectly, do you love Jesus as much as you should? Again, your answer is probably no, and that's right. If the answer to the first question is no, the answer to the second question has to be no as well, because we're supposed to love him perfectly, but we don't. Third question, do you love Jesus at all? Now, we need to add in that what we're talking about here is the biblical Christ, the Christ that we encounter in the Bible. It can be very easy to be converted to church life, but not converted to Christ. There's a big difference there. Anyway, do you love Jesus at all? Now, if you can say yes to this third question, that's where all of the theology we've talked about tonight comes in very, very handy. Consider this question. Is it possible for an unsaved person to have any true affection for Christ? And the answer is no. Affection for Christ is a result of the Spirit's work. That's what regeneration is all about. That's what the Spirit does in quickening. God the Holy Spirit changes the disposition of our souls and the inclination of our hearts. Before regeneration, we're cold, hostile, or indifferent to the things of God. Love for God is kindled by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts. So if you can answer yes to the question, do you love Jesus at all? Even though you may not love Jesus as much as you should, i.e. perfectly, that tells me that the Spirit has done his transforming work in your soul. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to conjure up any true affection for Jesus Christ that you say you love him is a sign that you are numbered among God's people. Even more practically, in terms of the application of all of this, what can you do to increase your assurance of salvation? What can you do to confirm your calling and election? Wouldn't it be great if God had provided something, anything at all, to help us? 
Well, the good news is that he has. He's provided us with the means of grace. Now, that's an old phrase that is taken from church history. Uh, The shorter catechism says that the outward and ordinary means where Christ communicates the benefits of salvation are his word, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the channels through which Christ helps his people know they are his. Let me just say a word or two about those things. If you want to increase your assurance of salvation, you will need to read and study the Bible. I want to quote the larger catechism on this. Uh, You'll maybe know that there's a a shorter catechism. There's also a larger one, and it's basically just longer than the shorter catechism. Uh, This is larger catechism answer 155. It's going to be on the screen. Uh, Just to say the language is dated, but it's a very helpful quote. This is the, the answer. It says, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them onto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. The power of the word to accomplish these things is meant that, that, that are mentioned in this quote are emphasized again and again in the Bible. A few verses, Psalm 19, verse 7, Jeremiah 23, 29, John 17, 17, Romans 1, 16, Hebrews 4. Those are just some of the passages you should look up when you get home. <coughs> Excuse me. God made the world out of nothing with his word, and he saves and assures his people through it. So that quote highlights the importance of us reading our Bibles on a daily basis. We've been thinking about that at Vibe this term. In the autumn, we thought about how to read the Old Testament. This term, we're thinking about what it means to practically sit down and read the Bible. The Bible is one of the means God uses to assure us of our salvation. But his word often lies untouched, gathering dust on our shelves or bedside tables. Prayer is also a means of grace. Prayer functions as a means of grace by bringing us near to God, the source of all goodness and grace. When Moses came face to face with the Lord, his face shone. When we pray, we too come into the presence of the living God. And as Paul tells us, the experience changes us. It's for this reason that Paul also commands us to pray without ceasing. The the sacraments are also a means of grace. Every time we take communion, we're reminded that Jesus' body was broken and his blood spilt for our sins. Every time we witness a baptism, we're reminded that Jesus washes washes us clean. In this area, we, we can talk more broadly about being actively involved in a church family. Although Christians are saved as individuals, our salvation brings us into relationship with God and the rest of his people. We become members of Jesus' body, the church. We don't just gain new life, but also a new family. We're meant to express our relationship with our spiritual brothers and sisters in the context of a local church. In, In other words, we can understand it like this. If you're feeling distant in terms of faith, if you're feeling dry spiritually, if you're struggling with assurance, it will be directly related to how often you're coming to church. If you're dipping in and out of church, things will be a little bit out of focus when it comes to faith. I actually think it's really important that we talk about this 
And this is not me complaining to the people who come to church about the people who don't come to church. It's us realizing that this gathering here this evening, morning and evening, is really important for us in our walk with Christ. I've used this illustration before, but a really helpful way to think about coming to church is to think about coals on a fire. We, we, we have an open fire in our living room, and it's great in the winter. Occasionally, a piece of coal will, will fall out. And when that happens, what, what happens? Well, it stops burning. It goes cold. It's not part of the fire anymore. It's not doing what it was designed to do. When you don't come to church, when you think you'd rather just skip it, when you think, you'd, you, that, when you think that you'll catch up online afterwards, even though you never really do, when you think you'll just go next week and everything will be all right, you're opening up yourself to becoming cold in your walk with Christ. And that will affect your assurance of salvation. One of the challenges of living in the modern world as, as a Christian is, is seeing the value of the things the world does not value. So the world doesn't value the written word anymore. We live in a world where lots of people don't read anymore. They scroll, they flick, they scan. To be a Christian, to confirm our calling and election, will mean that we're readers, readers of the Bible. The, the, the world talks a good game about praying, but it doesn't understand biblical prayer. Thoughts and prayers with someone going through a difficult time are not the same as true biblical prayer, which to the world is actually talking to someone who isn't there. And the world is, is moving in the direction of thinking that churches are not just irrelevant, but they're dangerous. They're places where bigots go. They're places where, where hate speech is delivered from the pulpit. But these are the things that God has given to help us know that we are his. And we should give ourselves to them because through them, we will be assured of our calling and our election. We will be assured of our salvation. Let me finish with a story. Uh, after a man called Blaise Pascal died in 1662, his servant discovered a small piece of parchment in an item of clothing. At the top of the paper, Pascal had drawn a cross, and beneath the cross were written these words. The year of grace, 1654. Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy and peace. Pascal was a mathematician and a Christian thinker and what he wrote about was his night of fire, an experience that gripped his soul and changed the course of his life. He kept a record of it, of it literally close to his heart. And the resounding theme of his record was one of joy. Along with joy is certainty. His joy was inseparably linked to some kind of assurance. Is Cardinal Bellarmine right that the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance? Not at all. Assurance is not a heresy, but, but something wonderful that God provides to those who seek him and love him with all of their hearts. A night of fire settles something in Pascal's soul once and for all. To gain assurance of our salvation is to get our lives settled. Once assurance is attained, doubt exits from the soul and joy rushes in to fill the vacuum. It might take the majority of our lives to reach it, but it's a quest that's worth the journey.
At this point in our service, we're going to continue in our worship as we bring God our offering. But as our offering is received, the praise group are going to come and play and sing a piece called Turn Your Eyes. It's a modern take on an old classic, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Uh, Those words are are used throughout the hymn. Uh, And in a sense, it's what we need to do this evening as we reflect on all that we've thought about. Let me read you the opening verse of the hymn before the praise group come and lead us. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us, and our measureless debt was erased. If you want to know and experience the joy of assurance, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, because when you do that, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his beauty and glory and grace. Assurance is not a heresy, but something wonderful that God provides to those who love him and who seek him with all of their hearts.